Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Alternative Mormon. Today's episode is a little bit of a surprise for me. I wasn't planning on doing this episode this week. But after my last issues episode, Mike from the Amulet to Zeezrom episodes sent me some comments of his feedback on the last issues, the Book of Mormon influences King James version of the Bible in the Book of Mormon. He sent me a document with some comments of feedback on that. And I've provided his comments in the show notes, uh, a link to those comments for anyone curious, and I'm going to go through those and address them. Um, but this episode isn't exactly a counter-argument to his feedback. Uh, I will, you know, counter-argue a couple points. What I really wanted to do with this episode is his document was sort of a catalyst to me for some thoughts, um, maybe a catalyst theory for this episode, a little inside joke that if you don't get, hopefully you'll understand more once you get to the Abraham uh, issues episode. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about a few things after his comments, so I wanted to just record a quick episode. You know, usually on these episodes, I'll compile a couple bullet points to kind of help keep my mind on track. On this one, I didn't do that. I did prepare a few resources, and you'll see what I mean. I have a couple sound bites and uh, a couple other resources. But I... I didn't want to compile a full bullet point list or a script per se on this episode because I I do want this to be real. I want this to be a little heartfelt, um, and I want you to really understand where I'm coming from. I want this to come from a, a place of sincerity. So I'm going to get into the specifics of Mike's comments in a minute. First of all, I respect the hell out of Mike for taking the time to put those comments together. I think that's awesome. He texted me when he sent it, and he said, hey, hopefully this doesn't come off overly aggressive. And I don't find his comments offensive at all. In fact, if you remember in the Issues episode, I challenged any believers to please uh, give me their feedback because I'm pretty heavily biased on this stuff. You know, I said the word objective in the Issues, and I probably need to stop saying that word because I don't think I can be objective with the amount of time I put into them. Uh, in other words, I don't put enough time into them to be perfectly objective, and I do have a heavy bias. So I should probably, you know, correct that in future issues episodes and just just accurately say that it is my opinion on these things. You know, obviously I'm cherry-picking certain pieces of doctrine and church history that were the critical tipping points in my faith crisis and my loss of testimony. And so it's probably not fair for me to say that I'm objective. So I'm going to stop using that word. And Mike caught me on that, and I commend him on that. And that was kind of the thought that got me started on these the string of thoughts that I want to share with you guys today. So first of all, I did want to kind of revisit my purpose of this podcast just briefly. I know I've talked about this a lot, um, but especially the issues episodes. And, and this is me reminding myself because it's really hard to stay in this gray area, to stay kind of close to the line and not become overly polarized. And, you know, I don't want to become a bitter anti-Mormon. That's not my goal. And especially with the issues episodes, I'm hoping to avoid, you know, being persuasive and being critical and trying to hurt people's faith. I don't want to do that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, help people understand where I'm coming from. And there are parts of the issues episode, the first one, that I probably could have done a better job at that and been a little bit more honest and truthful of my motives. So this is just a reminder to me. As I was daydreaming on that thought a little bit this week, uh, as I was working one day, the song 
The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. I'm sure at least Mike will appreciate that because him and I have some similar taste for the classic oldies. Um, just an amazing song. Uh, and I want to, I would play a part of the song, but I'm pretty sure Spotify would remove and, and maybe a few other platforms would remove me for copyright. So I won't play a part of the song, but I do want to read a couple of the verses of lyrics that really stood out to me. So this is the third and fourth verse from Simon and Garfunkel. They say, and in the naked light, I saw 10,000 people, maybe more people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never shared and no one dared disturb the sound of silence. Fools, said I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence. So how does that apply to my podcast and my faith crisis experience? You know, when I look around the world... I see the sounds of silence everywhere. I hear, I see these people talking without speaking and these people hearing without listening. You know, I see it on Mormon and ex-Mormon Twitter. I see it on Mormon and ex-Mormon Reddit. I see it in our church houses. I see it with my peers, my coworkers. There's just a lack of authenticity sometimes. And it's so hard to just be real sometimes. And that's my goal with this podcast is I do feel like I have a voice. I don't think I have all the answers. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still figuring some things out, but I want my voice to be heard and I don't want to be scared of sharing that voice. I, I hope it doesn't hurt anybody, especially those close to me who maybe still hold beliefs close to them. But I, I think it does all of us a disservice when we, you know, talk without speaking and hear without listening, as the amazing lyrics from Simon and Garfunkel say. And the reason this is so important to me is some of these critical issues, I think we just need to talk about them. And so while I do apologize, you know, if any of my views are non-objective or are harmful or hurt feelings, and, and hopefully, you know, I don't think I've said anything too polarizing or, or too anti-Mormon yet. And I hope to keep it that way. Um, but Mike did call me on the carpet on a couple things, and rightly so, and we're going to get into that. Um, but I, I want to continue to share my voice. And so so really the big takeaway from this is I'm going to stop saying the word objective because I don't think I can be objective when it comes to the issues. I'm very opinionated and passionate. I don't want to be overly critical of the church or church leaders, but I am going to call out things that I find harmful or that personally hurt me. And... I'm not asking for people to believe the way I do. I'm just trying to talk with speaking and I want people to hear with listening. And, and that's my goal with this podcast. So I, I don't have any, you know, unrealistic dreams of this podcast becoming famous and, and making this huge change in the world. I just want to share my voice as small as that may be. And hopefully it helps somebody. And if it doesn't directly help somebody, I hope it just helps us all have a little bit of understanding. So with that being said, um, I do want to dive into Mike's thoughts a little bit. And like I said, Mike may be surprised. He probably thought this was going to be a counter argument and I'm going to counter argue a couple things, but nothing too big. Um, 
most of his points are pretty valid, and I think it would take a lot of time and a lot of back and forth to really get into the heart of these, and maybe I'll invite him to do that on a couple Amulek and Zezrum episodes. I think he flagged a couple things that would be really interesting discussion points. So let's get into his comments. So his first one is about my Jeffrey R. Holland slides, and I want to cover the last thing he says first and then go to the first thing. So he called me out on a picture I chose of Elder Holland frowning. <laughs> and uh, the fun, the reason I'm laughing is is because uh, Mike kind of called me out on this and he saw what I was doing and he was kind of right on. Um, and it was, you know, it was obviously kind of, um, kind of a small thing. But he says, uh, choosing a picture of Elder Holland frowning reflects some disrespect. I know it probably looks funny. Uh, it's not an image an objective source would have chosen. So again, the reason I'm laughing, I'm not making fun of you, Mike. Um, there was a little bit of intent when I put that picture in there. And let me show you what I mean by that. Um, there's, there's a few things with Elder Holland that... Quite honestly, I've been a little bit hurt about lately, and maybe, you know, in, including the talk safety for the soul that I shared on my issues episode, and maybe this was my way of putting a little dig into Elder Holland, and and that probably wasn't right of me, um, and so I apologize if that offended anybody. I and and everybody, you know, those who aren't on the believing side, like, um, don't don't you know don't make a big deal out of this on the side of Mike, you know, oh, well, why is he making a big deal out of him frowning? Like, no, I, I get it, right? And and yes, it's a small thing. And yeah, when I first read that, I did roll my eyes a little bit like, yeah, big deal. But when I thought about it more, I was like, no, he's right. That wasn't fair of me. And there was some emotion behind it from me. And just something I want to say is like, faith crises and faith transitions, I've compared them a little bit to the grief cycle. Like, I've had days where I've been depressed. I've had days that I've been angry. I've had days where I've been in denial. And then I've had days where I feel like I'm accepting it. And I've been really tried to be really cautious on the days that I feel angry or depressed, not to record on those days because, uh, you know, I don't want to record under the influence of emotions and have that get in the way of things I really want to say. And um, this was just a very small example of that, but I do want to share a couple things that Elder Holland has said recently that I've been kind of stewing over that have maybe led me to feel this way. And I'm going to be really cautious about this because um, while I'm not scared of saying what's on my mind, um, I do want to do this respectfully. I also want to note, you know, anybody anybody who follows big Mormon podcasters, if, if you know the name Bill Real, I believe the video that finally got him exed uh, excommunicated was a video called Elder Holland Liar Liar Pants on Fire and I'm not going to go quite to that extreme and the this is going to be a little bit critical but more or less this is me saying these are the things he said that hurt me personally and here's why um, so while I'm not afraid of you know criticizing and and with my faith crisis I now just view these view these people as men um, you know I don't have them on any certain pedestal and so I do want to hold them accountable for the things they say. Um, this hopefully won't come from a voice of criticism, but just of honesty and sincerity of my own personal feelings. So with that being said, um, Elder Holland throughout the years has said 
a few different things about people who have gone through faith crises. And I want to share a couple of those with you guys because I have been stewing over them. And this is kind of a tangent. This isn't totally related to the issues episode, but I do want to share it just because these are important to me. And uh, there's they they did contribute to my faith crisis, and they contribute to probably the way I talked about the talk, Safety for the Soul. I, I did mischaracterize it a little bit, and I was a little unfair. So I want to talk about these. So this first clip, probably a lot of you have heard. It's just a couple weeks old. Um, this is from a CES fireside a few weeks ago to young adults when Elder Holland talked about faith crises. So here's the clip. I bless any among you who might be speaking these days of a faith crisis. Real faith, life-changing faith, Abrahamic faith is always in crisis. That's how you find out if it's faith at all. I promise you that more faith will mean less crisis until finally God says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So a couple thoughts on this clip. First of all, I can honestly say, especially my time in the church, but even now that I've had a faith crisis and I've started to step away from the church a little bit, that I love and respect and revere Elder Holland as a man and for his passion, his sincerity. I've always been, you know, the guy during general conference when I, when I was in church, at least the guy in general conference, I would be audibly cheering when Elder Holland was called up next to speak. And so watching some of these clips from this fireside, it actually does make me feel a little sad um, because I don't know if I'm the only one who picked up on it, but it does seem like uh, his health is decreasing a little bit, and I um, hope for the best for Elder Holland. I hope his health increases. I know he's had some health challenges over the last couple of years. So that's, that's the first thought I wanted to say on that. The second thought, um, this clip that he talks about, Abrahamic faith is always in crisis. And then he says something seemingly paradoxical. And maybe I just don't understand what he meant by it, but it is sort of confusing to me. He says, but more faith will lead to less crisis. So so that's the first thing I didn't like about this clip was it was confusing and I didn't really understand it. But what I what I really don't like about it is it feels a little belittling to me as someone who's had a faith crisis. And I can point to a few other examples from church leaders that have kind of made it sound like if you're the one having a faith crisis, if you're the one stepping away from the church, it's your fault. Your faith isn't strong enough. You you didn't try hard enough. You you gave up too easily. You're supposed to have a faith crisis. What's wrong with you? Don't you know that faith is always in crisis? And that you know, I I know that's probably not what he meant, but that's how I felt listening to that. And that's kind of in line with what we can see with early church leaders even. You know, a lot of these early revelations from Joseph Smith, it always seemed like the saints were to blame. You know, they they march with Zion's camp all the way over to Missouri, and then they don't do anything. They just march back, and, and men died, and were sick, and, you know, it didn't work out because they weren't faithful enough. And Zion was supposed to be in Missouri, uh, in far west, Independence, Missouri. Uh, 
and but they weren't faithful enough, and so that didn't work out. The law of consecration was supposed to be God's kingdom on earth, but they weren't faithful enough, so it failed. And maybe I'm being a little bit antagonistic here, but that is the way I feel, and, and I feel like that's remnants of that pattern today, of if something goes wrong in the church, and, and there's many people leaving the church with faith crises, learning some of the things about the church, and if anything goes wrong, it's your fault. And I do take an issue with that, and anyway, take it how you want it. I, I know I'm not the only one who took issue with this. I've seen it a lot on on Twitter and on Instagram and a few other places of people talking about this quote. So I've got to think I'm not the only one who struggled a little bit with Elder Holland saying this. Um, but anyway, that's, that's the first quote. The next clip, um, maybe some of you have heard this. This is from a fireside in Arizona. This one probably hurts the most, if I'm being honest. And that's not because... Um, not because so much of what Elder Holland says, although what he says is is pretty hurtful too. What hurts worse is the humor and the laughing and the, you know, loud audience laughter in response to this because it does sort of feel like me as someone who's starting to leave the church and has had a faith crisis, that I'm the laughing stock. That this is a very serious situation for me and it's not something I've taken lightly you know I've I've spent months thinking about this and you better believe I've thought am I doing the right thing what if I'm being deceived what if what if I'm wrong what if I'm harming my family what if I'm doing the wrong thing and I'm going to hurt my eternal salvation what if what if what if this is not a small thing okay and I'm not I'm not happy when I sound like the laughing stock to people. And again, I know that's unintended, and so I'm not gonna try to I'm gonna try to stay off my soapbox as long as I can. But it does feel that way. So anyway, here's the clip. But I think there's some days here where we get a little weak neat, we get a little willy-nilly and say, uh, you know, I'm gonna bail all this. Don't you dare bail. I am so furious with people who leave this church. I don't know whether furious is a good apostolic word. <laughs> but I am. <laughs> what on earth kind of conviction is that? What kind of patty cake taffy pole experience is that? <laughs> as if as if none of this ever mattered, as if nothing in our contemporary life mattered, as if this is all just supposed to be just exactly the way I want it, and answer every one of my questions, and pursue this, and occupy that, and defy this, and then maybe I'll be a Latter-day Saint. Well, there's too much Irish in me for that. <laughs> this church means everything to me, and I'm not going to leave it, and I'm not going to let you leave it. The first great rule of a storm at sea is stay in the boat. This is no time for you to say, oh, well, now it looks like, I don't know, nobody cares. I'll get up here, I'll get up here on the edge and do a little half gainer over the side. <laughs> Boy, that's a terrific performance. I tell you, you're in for a good experience. <laughs> that's the dumbest thing you can do. And 
and the only thing dumber would be for somebody else to follow you. <laughs> you stay in the boat and pull the life jacket down on you and grab an oar and just hang on and it's going to get calm. So I think I've pretty much shared all my thoughts on that clip already. Um, but there are a couple things that, you know, really stand out to Elder Holland, to me from what Elder Holland says. First of all, you know, belittling the faith crisis experience. This isn't some taffy pole, you know, easy experience. He almost makes it sound like those who leave the church are throwing a little temper tantrum and I just want it my way or the highway. And it's like, no, you know, and, and he says, this church means everything to me. This church meant everything to me. If you think it didn't, that's not true. And I, I've seen some really hurtful things lately. I need to get off Twitter, guys. Why do I even stay on Twitter? It's such an unhealthy place. But I've seen some really damaging and hurtful things on Twitter lately from members of the church. You know, just the normal uh, hypothesizing why people leave and, oh, these people who say they held leadership callings, they never really believed it, and they're just saying that as show and... If they'd really believed it, there's no way they would be doing what they're doing. Guys, That that's so hurtful. And I, I do want to clarify, as I'm getting on this rant, um, these are not directed at Mike. Mike is like salt of the earth as far as uh, active members go, and and, and most active members. I, I really think the majority of active members, you know, most of the people I've talked to about my faith crisis have just been awesome and supporting. And I'm not saying that they've you know, backed down from their beliefs, but they've been awesome. So Mike, this is not directed at you. I want to make that clear. It's just some of the thoughts you gave me, like I said, were a springboard to some other thoughts. So don't feel targeted by this. Um, but it, it is, you know, it does kind of hurt. So those, those two talks, um, that I already shared, um, kind of got me spiraling in, in relation to my relation to Elder Holland. And so honestly, Showing a frowning picture of Elder Holland was my little way of maybe getting back at him. So you caught me there, Mike. Uh, well done. And I apologize. I really do. Because um, while I do realize that was a small thing, um, he caught me on that. So so clearly it's not such a small thing to act to members. And I, I do sometimes forget, you know, the things that are sensitive to members. And I don't, I don't want to do things that are offensive or insulting to your beliefs. So I apologize for that. Um... But on that note, let's get into the safety for the soul talk. And I wanted to, to provide another soundbite from that. And this is kind of in line with those faith crises. And this is part of the reason I'm so passionate about this talk about the Book of Mormon now is he has some of that same rhetoric about people that leave the church. So let's play this clip. But there is one kind of Latter-day destruction that has always sounded to me more personal than public more individual than collective, a warning perhaps more applicable inside the church than outside it. The Savior warned in the last days, even those of the covenant, the very elect, could be deceived by the enemy of truth. If we think of this as a form of spiritual destruction, it may cast light on another Latter-day prophecy. Think of the heart as the figurative center of our faith, the poetic location of our loyalties and our values. And then consider Jesus' declaration that in the last days men's hearts 
shall fail them. The encouraging thing, of course, is that our Father in Heaven knows all of these latter-day dangers, these troubles of the heart and the soul, and has given counsel and protections regarding them. In light of that, it has always been significant to me that the Book of Mormon, one of the Lord's powerful keystones in this counteroffensive against latter-day ills, begins with a great parable of life, an extended allegory of hope versus fear, of light versus darkness, of salvation versus destruction, an allegory of which Sister Ann Dibb spoke so movingly this morning. In that dream, Lehi's dream, an already difficult journey gets more difficult when a mist of darkness arises obscuring any view of the safe but narrow path his family and others are to follow. It is imperative to note that this mist of darkness descends on all the travelers, the faithful and the determined ones, the elect, we might even say, as well as the weaker and ungrounded ones. The principal point of the story is that the successful travelers resist all distractions, including the lure of forbidden paths and jeering taunts from the vain and proud who have taken them. So the reason I wanted to play this part of the talk is this beginning of the talk, Safety for the Soul, um, and, and thoughts similar to it from other church leaders, are the thoughts that have probably caused me the greatest discomfort and cognitive dissonance during my faith crisis. And I think were probably some of the most harmful teachings, this idea of the elect being deceived. And, you know, I, this isn't in a way prideful of myself, but in some ways, maybe some people view me as one of the elect being deceived. And, and again, I'm not bragging on myself, but I've been in the church my whole life. You know, I've held leadership positions, um, been known to, you know, share powerful lessons in, in church with the Spirit and so forth. So it makes me think, am I being deceived? Am I wrong? And then Elder Holland, you know, it's not just the elect being deceived. A couple steps later, now we're the vain and the prideful. And maybe to active members, my little soapbox rant of this episode sounds vain and prideful. <laughs> and if it does, I'm sorry. Um, but I think you can maybe see why that's a little bit hurtful to me. Um, but anyway, enough of my personal feelings and my personal offenses and my, you know, I'll, I'll stop having my pity party here. Um, so let's, let's dive into safety for the soul. But I did want to play that introduction because it does kind of give the framework of why I struggle with this talk. And ironically, this used to be one of my favorite general conference talks. Like, top notch in a binder on my mission I would read every couple weeks I would quote from honestly I wouldn't be shocked if at times in my life I've had this talk almost memorized verbatim especially the parts about the Book of Mormon so let's get into Mike's comments a little bit on this so first of all he he says that my straw man that I talk about in his talk I um, incorrectly implied and you know, he actually brings up a good point. He's saying that um, 
Elder Holland touches on pretty much all of the theories, failed theories about its origins, from Ethan Smith to Solomon Spaulding. So we have Solomon Spaulding and Ethan Smith, which were kind of plagiarism ideas, deranged paranoid. I talked about that with mental health to cunning genius. I talked about that number five from Brian Hales. Uh, this is the part that I view as kind of a straw man, though, is when he says none of these frankly pathetic answers for this book has ever withstood examination because there is no other answer than the one Joseph gave. And the reason I view this as a straw man, and and Mike says, what would you rather he say? And that's a fair question because in a general, honestly, a general conference talk probably isn't the best place for this kind of um, argument just because there's not enough time in a general conference talk. So I guess, I guess that's what my um, criticism of that is, is he doesn't dive into these. He just says, I've looked into these. They're pathetic. Don't listen to them. Just listen to our answer. And the honest truth is he's half right because these these theories don't necessarily have the whole picture right we haven't figured out the perfect picture this is exactly how joseph smith did it and it's reproducible and it's scientific um but there is some merit to him so i talked about that in the king james version influences like there's something that needs to be wrestled with there and then as i get to future episodes like the view of the hebrews um some of Joseph Smith's um, influences, like these aren't frankly pathetic answers. Like they're things that we should be concerned about. And so that's, that's why I push back on that a little bit. The other logical fallacy that I didn't bring up. um, And I know active members probably push back on this and say, well, yeah, that's the way it is. And then we use the spirit to fill in the gaps. But I do feel like the other logical fallacy that um, members of the church, and especially in this talk from elder Holland use is the burden of proof logical fallacy in that they push the burden of proof. They say, prove to us that Joseph Smith wrote it. And that's a logical fallacy because the burden of proof should be on the one making an outstanding claim. And so my response to that is prove to me that the Book of Mormon is what it says it is. And it hasn't been proved through archaeological evidence, through scientific evidence, through really even literary evidence, I know you know people point to chiasms and uh, other literary devices to be the proof, uh, but to me that's that's not enough. And and I like I said, I know the answer to that is yeah, it's never going to be enough. That's why you have to have faith. And I get that. And and honestly, I'm probably not going to talk about that. And and I think that's valid. I, you know, if you say I believe the Book of Mormon because I felt the power of the Spirit, how can I logically? argue with that right and and i won't um because i don't think i don't think that's fair for me to argue against your personal experiences but i'm not going to bring up the faith argument because i think it's kind of a an argument stopper while it might be valid and it might be valid for individuals i don't think it's valid for a logical argument and i think anyone who you know debates or has any sort of logic would agree with that even if they believe in the book of mormon so so don't get me wrong what i'm not saying i'm not saying that because you believe it because you feel that way that you're wrong i'm not saying that i'm saying that it's (laughs) it's hard because it is kind of an argument stopper so so when i don't bring that up it doesn't mean i'm invalidating your personal experiences about the book of mormon uh that's between you and god and i i understand that and i don't want to devalue that so hopefully that makes sense um but what i'm saying is in a logical argument the burden of proof should be on the one making the extraordinary claim which would be the church in this case about the book of mormon so that's my views on that um mike does bring up some good 
points about this, especially that um, the Elder Holland talks about this, and it's not just direct plagiarism, so he got me there. The next point he makes is a, where I talk about Alexander Campbell and the Era of Restoration. And Mike actually brings up a really good point here, and I, I can't even refute it, um, because it is a good point. And, and it kind of plays into what I was taught as a kid about the Restoration. You know, we're always taught the the setting or the, you know, the soil was cultivated for the seeds of the restoration to grow. That, you know, we had freedom of religion, there was a hotbed of religious activity, and that that's the way that God cultivated Joseph's surroundings to make the restoration come up. So he brings up that um, perhaps there were similar ideas around Joseph Smith because they were from God, and that they worked their way into the Book of Mormon because these people were kind of being inspired at the same time. And honestly, like, that's probably one of the better arguments I've heard for these influences. Um, because I, I don't know how to argue against that. I guess my argument would be that some of these things that are similar have been proven false through logical and scientific ways. Uh, mostly, and I'll get into these more on the view of the Hebrews episode, mostly the claim about uh, Native Americans being Israelites. And I, I don't want to dive into that too much because I'm going to get into the DNA the scientific DNA studies um, in the next episode a little bit. But that I guess that would be my one counter argument to that. But other than that, I really can't argue that. Like, um, as it says in Isaiah, God's ways are higher than our ways. And I can't argue if that's the way God wanted the restoration to happen was by just, you know, kind of slowly moving, um, moving the pieces ever so slowly to make the puzzle come together. I mean, that's, that's plausible, right? And so I, I can't argue with that. So he actually brings up a really good point there. The next point Mike brings up, honestly, he totally got me here, and I'm kind of shamed. I, it, when he did this, I kind of put my hand, head in my hands and was like, oh, he, he roasted me on this one. So I made one small claim, and honestly, I don't even know why I made it, because it was kind of a side tangent as I was talking about the Sermon on the Mount versus the Sermon at the Temple, that what law of Moses? There is no law of Moses in the Book of Mormon. And I said that wrong. I said that without any research before I said that. And it just kind of came off my tongue without even thinking. And so Mike just absolutely roasted me on this. And I think he's right. Um, I did dive into a few of the resources he provided. You know, the law of Moses is talked about in the topical guide. Um, and he provides a link that you can see in the notes if you're curious. Um, so he got me there. I guess my counter argument to this would be, while I do realize there's Law of Moses references, um, and I would have to go through and do an actual study, and I almost did this, but I ran out of time before this episode. But you, you know, unless I did a thorough investigation of it, just my feeling of reading the Book of Mormon pre-3 Nephi 11 is it seems to me there are more references to Christ than there are to the law of Moses, which is very different than the Old Testament. The Old Testament, there's many more references to the law of Moses and, you know, just, just kind of the Jewish religion than the Christian religion. And Mike's counterargument to that is that the prophets in the Americas just knew more about Christ. And that's fair. Um, and you can actually follow that string of thought. You know, I think I believe Lehi is the first one. Um, hopefully I'm not talking out the side of my mouth. It, maybe it was Nephi, but I think it was Lehi that was first told the name Jesus. And then from that point forward, they start using that name, and it's pretty common. I guess 
and and again this this just comes down to is the book of mormon an actual historical record or is it written by someone in the 19th century because the christian theology definitely sounds 19th century to me and from you know reading the surrounding influences around joseph smith but that's just my feel and and again you know kind of the same thing as the era of the restoration argument maybe that's just how how god did it maybe god taught these people in 500 you know 600 to 0 bc in the americas the same kind of theology that 19th century christians had now one other point that i didn't bring up in the king james version influences i do feel like and i would notice this even when i was an active member i do feel like the theology and the doctrine in the book of mormon is more similar to 19th century christianity than it is to modern day mormonism theology and what i mean by that is there's a lot of talk about uh kind of the the trinity a trinitarian doctrine of god um and there's less talk about them being separate as we see you know with the 1838 first vision account and there's more talk about kind of a distinct heaven and hell as opposed to the full plan of salvation scripture and that kind of goes contrary to what i was told growing up that the book of mormon contains the fullness of the gospel and the argument i guess to that would be it contains all you need to know you know about jesus and about the small parts of the plan of salvation and then the bigger parts were revealed later the more uh specific doctrines of the godhead were revealed later but to me um the theology and doctrine of the book of mormon sounds more 19th century christian than it does modern mormonism and sounds more 19th century christian than it does 600 bc judaism and that's to me and that's my feeling looking through it but again to mike's point you know if god can do whatever he wants and and if if we do agree that god is real and god is all powerful um then if that's the way god wanted it to teach these ancient americans 19th century you know similar to 19th century christian theology then that's totally plausible and so i i recognize this argument from mike as well okay and the last comment mike made was about the comment i made about the apologetics theories of loose versus tight translation um so i'm gonna just talk about this one a little bit because this is something i'd actually like to bring up on an amulet to Zeezrom episode with mike and have a full discussion i mean we could spend a full episode talking about this honestly because this is something uh really critical to me when it comes to book of mormon apologetics i think this is one of the places that the Book of Mormon apologists um, contradict themselves the most, in my personal opinion. And so I'm not going to, other other than what I just said, I guess I did technically just refute Mike's argument. But other than that, I'm not really going to refute his argument. Um, but I will explain, I guess, my standpoint. My, my thoughts on that is just that um, the apologists do seem to use whichever strategy works for whichever question. So, like, when it comes to steel you know, oh, well, well, they didn't have steel, but it's just a loose translation. It's just something close to Joseph Smith. Or when it comes to the King James version of the Bible sections in the Book of Mormon, you know, oh, God just used what was in Joseph's mind to get that close. But then when you get to um, 
certain literary devices, I, I brought up the chiastic structure. Um, to me, that has to be a tight translation. Um, Mike's, Mike mentions word for word, which actually is a really good way to describe it because maybe we maybe instead of saying tight versus loose, maybe we need to have a talk about is it a word for word or a thought for thought translation? And so th those are the two phrases that are a lot of times used for translations, especially the translations of the Bible. So if it's a word for word translation, you know, that actually works for some of the apologists answers to like steel and horses. Um, oh, well, was it just a different word that was used? But the thought for thought translation, and, and I'm not a linguist or a translation expert. Uh, I need to read up more on this stuff. So someone who is could totally slay me on this and tell me I'm dead wrong. But I would think a thought for thought translation, which honestly is what I think would have to happen to preserve the exact King James language. A thought for thought translation, I would think, would damage the Hebraisms and the chiastic structure that are in the text. I could be wrong, but that that's my thought process, is that if it's a loose translation, some of the strongest apologetics don't work anymore, in my opinion, and, and I want to challenge Mike to talk about this a little bit more on an Amulek to Zeezrom episode. And, but on the con... On the contrary, on the opposite side, if it is a tight translation to get the Hebraisms to work, then the root, the things that the loose translation fix, like things from the Hebrews being in there, the King James Version of the Bible being in there, um, things of that nature, then then it contradicts it there. So that that's my thought on there. Um, however. I do realize, uh, again, Mike has some valid arguments. So what I'm trying to do with these episodes, just in conclusion, or sorry, what I'm trying to do with this response and conclusion is I'm not trying to roast Mike or trying to, you know, put him on the spot. I actually think it's super cool he took the time. I mean, if you read through this, he obviously spent a decent amount of time responding to this. And I really appreciate that because um, I think the only way I can keep these issues episodes fair, like I said in the first episode, is by airing and um, providing a space for the counter-arguments because I want, at the end of these episodes, kind of like I said, at, like they say at the end of Reading Rainbow, don't take my word for it, you know, read a book. And uh, read these books, read these sources, read these counter-arguments. Um, and I, I think, you know, read what's maybe uncomfortable to you because it's on the other side of your belief. And so that's what I'm trying to do here is, I know it sounds like I'm counter-arguing, I know I got a little you know, passionate about a few things at the beginning of this episode, but that's not the point. The point is um, I just want to provide a, a, a space for those voices. So going back to the sound of silence, I'm not trying to silence those opposite of my view. I want to hear what they have to say. I want to promote these voices. I want all of our voices to be heard. I want all of us to be real with each other. I want us to be authentic with each other. I love hearing how the framework of how some of these believers make it work. Mike included, you know, some of these other informed, really um, smart voices who believe, you know, like the Terrell Givens, the Patrick Masons, um, the Richard Bushmans. I love to hear the framework that those people can get it to work and to believe. Now, personally, those frameworks don't work for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in the spot I am. I personally feel it takes a certain level of mental gymnastics that I just wasn't capable of and it wasn't healthy for me to, anymore to do those kind of mental gymnastics. But I like to hear how others make it work. 
And so long story short, um, just kind of recapping a little bit, these issues episodes, I'm not going to say objective anymore. That's, that's a lie. Um, I am going to still try to be honest and fair by sharing you resources on both sides, but they're going to be pretty heavily dripping with my opinion and my bias. And that's kind of the point. I'm trying to show my personal faith crisis points. And so it's not fair for me to say objective anymore. So I'm going to kind of drop that kind of language. Um, for the future issues episodes, if anybody, believer or non-believer alike, has any responses like Mike, I mean, you don't have to write multiple pages. You can even just send me an email at alternativemormonpodcast at gmail.com if you want. Um, I will happily air those comments, air those either non-believing or believing comments. Um, I'll invite Mike. He's welcome to respond to me on this episode if he'd like, but we're not going to turn the Alternative Mormon podcast into a debate back and forth with me and Mike. So if Mike, if you want to respond to this, you're welcome to. Um, If not, no worries. Um, but I look forward to future conversations, future discussions with any of you, non-believing, believing alike. And as always, thank you for tuning in and listening to my alternative ramblings. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or want to share your own faith transition story, please email me at alternativemormonpodcast at gmail.com. Also, Please share this or other episodes with anyone you may know who wants help on their own faith transition journey. Thank you.